Hello, I'm Mike McAllister, Editor-in-Chief at FreightWaves. For this F3 chat, I'll be speaking with best-selling author and New York Times technology reporter, Mike Isaac. We'll be diving into a number of topics, including Uber, supply chain crisis, and Mike's current involvement with Facebook coverage. But first, as a lifelong journalist myself, I'm always curious about how people got to where they are today. Uh, so, Mike, why don't you kind of give us a background of your career as a journalist and how you got to New York Times, which, by the way, I subscribe to. <laughs> Thank you for subscribing. Uh, yeah, no, I, it's funny. I, I feel like maybe a number of journalists I've spoken to just kind of have very winding, weird ways into journalism. But I, uh, I, I was an English major, started out actually at my college paper, just kind of dabbling and I had always wanted to figure out how to make a living writing um, and assumed that would be part-time barista, part-time writing, which ultimately became the truth for a while. Um, went from a uh, college paper to freelancing for actually a music magazine in San Francisco where I live and uh, ultimately got an internship in D.C. where I did some political writing. Uh, parlayed that into the real journalism jobs in the Bay Area were in tech. And um, I'm 37. I grew up with uh, the personal the home PC as part of my life and, you know, really having our first Gateway 2000 desktop in, in the home was uh, my intro to it. And so I, I think I had a facility with computers, even if I wasn't an engineer, and uh, began writing for Forbes, then moved to Wired Magazine, then moved to an industry mag called All Things D, which is now called Recode, and joined the Times in 2014, and have been there for the past seven and a half years or so, just writing about all sorts of topics from uh, Uber to Facebook now to Silicon Valley in general. It's been been fun. Tech is like probably one of my favorite areas to write about just because it's never old, basically. I did see you did a, a small stint at the Connie Nast. So did I, actually. So, uh, yeah, for Golf Digest. So, uh, so we have that in common, I think. But uh, otherwise, <laughs> uh, otherwise, I've been in sports. You've been on the tech side. So that's great. So, and we're both here today. So I appreciate you joining us. Uh, wanted to, uh, uh, first of all, I'm always envious about people that can write books. And you had a discussion with our founder and CEO, Craig Fuller, uh, about your book, uh, best-selling book, uh, Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. Uh, so, and that's a great discussion. I would encourage anybody to go back and, and revisit that video. Uh, and I certainly learned a lot about the book itself. Uh, I'm curious about just the evolution of how you wrote the book, uh, how it came about, the process, uh, the gathering of information, and then really the aftermath also. Yeah, you know, book writing, I mean, I'm sure you know as a writer, just books are always this thing where you kind of want to do it. It's also this daunting, huge project in your mind. And it's sort of one of those things where you're like, how am I going to do this? And uh, how do you break it down? I think in the beginning, I definitely was spinning my wheels and trying to figure out how I'm going to do this. And when you look at it as this, you know, 400 page insurmountable object. It's probably the wrong way to look at it. But for me, it was just, I broke it down ultimately into a series of uh, what were basically magazine articles. Each chapter was about three to 4,000 words. A lot of the reporting was just how you and I might report right now, you know, calling a lot of people, 
doing um, the footwork of reporting. Pre-pandemic, it was meeting people in uh, bars or coffee shops or offices or whatever, you know, in some cases where sources were more um, paranoid about see- being seen with me, then it was a little more clandestine. But um, I, I really think once I broke the mental barrier of saying, oh, I'm, how am I going to write this book? Broke it down in my mind. It became just much more of a piece by piece. This is the thing we can do and and just take it one step at a time. And I, I feel really proud of that book. I think um, my goal has always been as a writer just to, you know, be informative, but also tell a, a compelling narrative and a compelling story. And I think Uber was great because it was full of characters <laughs> and full of drama. Like I didn't have to, it's not something you can make up because it was all real and was even stranger than fiction. A lot of the drama that was happening in that company, you know, the founder getting ousted, the board sort of engaging in a coup, um, in sort of crazy CIA level spy tactics. So it was actually very fun. And I think I, you know, I would encourage anyone who is interested in book writing and reporting just to, you know, it's something doable. It's, it's sort of scary at first, but I really, I enjoyed the experience, you know, afterwards, I guess. I, I, I enjoy having written, but not the process of writing, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. So <laughs> I, I wanted to also ask you just about uh, the industry with Uber Freight and, you know, maybe Amazon, uh, autonomous shipping even, final mile delivery. How, how do you see things playing out, say, in the next uh, 10 to 20 years? I've, yeah, no, it's a great question. I've been very curious to know, Uber's in a tricky position because, you know, since Dara Kazushahi came on, uh, his uh, the CEO who replaced Travis, the basic mandate for him has been to get Uber to profitability, right? And for a long period of time, it seemed like uh, their ride-hailing ride engine of revenue would sort of be the engine of growth for them that they could build other products on. You know, Uber Freight was one of them. Um, they had they had a few sort of other ancillary businesses in in uh, in uh, you know ride sort of uh, what are they called? the scooters and um, and sort of short uh, short term sort of motion uh, getting people from point to point. Now, again, the pandemic is one of those things that's like the black swan event that kind of messed up everything for everyone, or at least threw a big wrench in how a lot of this stuff works. So I think they have been retooling and scaling back a lot on those uh, ancillary businesses. They've still um, dedicated some level of commitment to freight, I think. And they have said, you know, I mean, they opened this office in, I believe it was Chicago, uh, where they where they have a number of employees and they've said you know we're still sort of interested in this stuff but uh and you know they have this separate app and are pushing it on uh, folks who want to sort of use uber freight as a better system or a different system for uh for doing freight shipping freight uh organizing but i'm still really curious on their level of dedication to it especially since dara has had to uh re-engineer the business and and now they're really focused on uh, food delivery and grocery delivery is like these two main things because people aren't getting into cars uh, and doing rides as much. Um, as far as last mile delivery, I think that is going to be a big focal point for the 
Ubers and the Amazons of the world, um, particularly because they're, I mean, if you want to look at the pandemic as um, an opportunity for some industries, I guess I would say, folks are seeing that, you know, there's the Instacarts of the world that are like, look, we're perfect for this. This is our whole business model, right? Or, um, or autonomous sort of like, you know, robotics companies saying this is the exact sort of thing, you know, minimalizing communi- uh, 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 interaction between people and not having you go out. This is what we're here. So perhaps there's a lot more capital sort of dedicated to this type of last mile, very difficult to sort of do correctly last mile delivery over the coming years as we still figure out what a post-pandemic world even looks like, you know. So I I wanted to then kind of segue into the whole supply chain crisis that's going on right now. And obviously here at Freightways, we've been writing about that for uh, quite some time, as you might imagine. And uh, uh, lots of stories uh, that have generated from from our great reporters. And so, uh, so it was funny. And full disclosure here. So a week ago, New York Times uh, wrote a story. Uh, I got the headline here, how the supply chain broke and why it won't be fixed anytime soon by your colleague, uh, Peter Goodman, right? And I have to admit that uh, I sent it out on our Slack channels. I said, welcome to the party, New York Times. And it got me thinking just the, the kind of the relationship between, you know, B2B media versus mainstream media and when does a topic become a huge topic and uh, obviously your perspective now at the New York Times but you've been there too uh, in other smaller media outlets and so you know when when does a topic become the topic of the day and because everybody seems to be writing and reporting about supply chain crisis right now. No, 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 you're totally right and I think it's funny because when I was at um uh, all things D, which was like computing industry, uh, uh, sort of uh, niche, not niche, but just sort of an industry, uh, you know, site. Um, I would have the same reaction a lot of time. They're like, oh, welcome, welcome to what we've been writing about for the past three months or whatever, uh, New York Times or Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg. I think, I think it is a real delicate balance for being on the other side of it now. There's a delicate balance of being too in the weeds uh, for a broad audience of people uh, who want more generalized coverage versus being totally late to something that's already a widespread phenomenon. I would I would argue that you're probably um, more correct in this instance. Supply chain issues have been like the world issue for the past you know year or or longer. You we could argue because of how messed up everything is uh, due to the pandemic, due to, you know, even in my industry, chip shortages, uh, how that's affecting car output, how that's affecting video cards, how that's affecting all sorts of stuff, uh, much less getting to how my friend can't get a washer and dryer delivered to his house right now, you know. So I do think that big outlets have to sort of strike that balance and don't always get it right. I think the, I think they're now realizing, and then, you know, Folks like the Times, you know, as I, I will always, uh, uh, I won't talk, speak ill of my of my workplace, but I think that once we realize we might be behind something, then we're like, all right, we got to come in in a big way and sort of do it. So, but yeah, it's it's always a real balance between what can the average consumer sort of understand or what they want to know about something versus 
how much is getting in it in a way that is more specialized that maybe folks can't grow. And I, and I have to like reevaluate that and, uh, constantly for, or even just for the tech industry and like what, how in the weeds I get in my articles, basically. Well, of course, right now you're right in the middle of all this Facebook stuff. And I'm fascinated by, by this topic and, and by Facebook in general. And, uh, and so I noticed it's now called the Facebook papers, right? And that's what, that's what I keep referring to now. And of course I can't help but think when I see that reference, like it was 50 years ago, when the New York Times broke the Pentagon Papers, right? And so I, I guess that makes uh, Francis Haugen, our generation's Daniel Ellsberg, right? I don't know. How, how do you look at it? <laughs> it's, I, I, no, it's fascinating. So we have been, uh, for those who don't know, what the Times was part of a coalition of a number of news outlets that were given these documents by Francis Haugen, that whistleblower. And I, having read them for weeks now, um, it is a fascinating look under the hood inside a company that is very reluctant to make all parts of itself uh, transparent to the general public. Um, You know, Facebook, a number of tech companies have a kind of open culture internally where they talk about their issues, talk about how they want to fix different problems. And, um, And you could argue that that was a strength of Facebook in the past. And so the reason that Frances Haugen sort of came forward and put these papers out here is because she felt and others inside of the company felt that executives knew a bunch of these problems, but were not willing or able to work on them uh, for whatever reason. They they think it was because it would cost them too much growth and they wouldn't um, wouldn't want to sacrifice growth and profitability over making the network safer. Um, I think the truth of it all is somewhat more complicated. It's It can be very easy at the end of the day to say, you know, CEO X only cares about making money. I think, I think Facebook does obviously care about revenue, but I think they really care about dominance and being on top. And um, it is hard for them not to be in first place a lot of the time. And so what I, what I think Zuckerberg really wrestles with is, how to make the network safer, but not lose his whole position at the top of the pack. And that's hard. That's hard for any tech executive. But this, these papers are a really interesting first sort of look inside. And I imagine you're going to see a lot more come out in the coming uh, weeks or months. Anyway, I was curious. October 1st, I think, was when the Wall Street Journal broke that story. Can you kind of take us through what was going on maybe inside the Times while well, you're in San Francisco, but, and, you know, with Times reporters and kind of the reaction there, uh, you know, what did we do? I don't know how much you knew about it before it all came out in the Wall Street Journal. I, I, I love that kind of inside newspaper type stuff. Totally. Oh, it's one of those like four or five alarm fire things when, when a competitor blows, a, blows up your beat, right? And so uh, it was definitely not, a great time for us. I think, I mean, it's one of those things where you can't really defend against, uh, and the, the other reporter basically said, you know, the lead reporter, Jeff Horwitz, he's a good guy, uh, basically said, you know, I, I got really lucky meeting a source who decided to dump this whole mess of documents on us. And it's, you know, sometimes uh, just from my perspective, sometimes you're going to get that and that's great. And they did a really good job sort of making that into a package and building that level of reporting out and spending really a year doing that. 
And sometimes you're going to be on our end of it where you just have to sort of catch up and, um, and uh, sort of meet the competitors where they are. I think the, the thing that helps every news outlet now is that uh, Haugen, Francis Haugen gave the documents widely to more outlets and they're going to be pretty much ubiquitous at some point when they all get put on the internet. But um, it is definitely difficult when you're just sort of on the outside looking in and one competitor has all this information and you don't, you're just scrambling to figure out how to catch up. Oh, I've been there, believe me, many times. <laughs> uh, so today, as a matter of fact, as we're recording this uh, uh, this show, uh, today uh, you wrote a story about how Facebook is changing its name, basically its brand, to something called Meta. And this is kind of based off something that Mark Zuckerberg says uh, is a metaverse goal of the company. And so I just, you know, since it's really fresh, I was just hoping you could kind of take us through what exactly is metaverse? What this means? Is he is he basically rebranding just to kind of get away from all the controversy and hope he kind of hides under a, a different rock or, or what? Yeah, I think it serves a number of purposes. On the one hand, Zuckerberg is very much obsessed with this idea of the metaverse, which um, they spent a lot of this you know hour and a half long presentation that the company made just explaining to people what the metaverse is and uh, basically it's kind of a connected uh, version of, of bringing digital reality maybe to offline reality and kind of imagine being in virtual reality and putting on your goggles there and buying a shirt, uh, an avatar of a shirt, and then taking that to augmented reality where people could put on a pair of special glasses and see you wearing that shirt out and about in the real physical world. So it's kind of meta means like connecting a bunch of different spaces into one sort of continuous reality rather than us sort of switching modes from, okay, I'm going to work and doing this uh, in my workplace versus this is what I do in VR when I'm playing games or something. It's kind of connecting all of those. And it's a very, a lot of this comes from a, a book called Ready Player One which people in Silicon Valley love that book. It's very sort of future-facing. Some of it comes from another book called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Um, and a lot, it's funny, a lot of this comes from dystopian versions of the future in literature. But I think uh, Silicon Valley folks looked at it and thought this would be amazing if we built this. And so Zuckerberg has been obsessed with this. He's obsessed with VR and AR as the next sort of major computing platforms akin to the mobile smartphone revolution that we went through, you know, 10 or 12 years ago with, you know, the iPhone and Android. And he changed the name of the company basically to set up Facebook, which is now Meta, as a metaverse company. This is the future of what we're dedicated to. And we still have all these social apps over here that are making all our money and being very successful. But the point of what we're doing is to build the future of what computing looks like. And that's how I'm dedicating all our resources basically to doing that. Now, the funny part is it also serves a very helpful purpose of getting them away from the gnarly trash fire that is all the controversy surrounding their apps right now, uh, especially the social apps. But Zuckerberg likes to spend a lot more of his time in the future uh, and thinking about the future rather than the current controversy. Well, you know, speaking of Zuckerberg, you you deal obviously with the Silicon Silicon Valley giants, and so I'm, I'm curious how 
tech coverage has evolved from you know the kind of the startup days back then to how it is now now that these companies are among the giants of the world and how maybe uh, you view those people in terms of you know your coverage are you are you harsher not harsher but are you you know more investigative of them now and and you know they're not just the kind of the cute little startups but now they're the big boys so i mean i i I thought about this a lot when i was writing my book too you know what what tech coverage has looked like over the years what my coverage has looked like over the years what uh, mainstream coverage has looked like and i think the I think mainstream coverage, including big newspapers like the one I'm at right now, largely looked at Silicon Valley with wonder and with sort of a bemused attachment, detachment at what tech folks were working on, right? Oh, they're creating the future. That's great. That's funny. Look at those crazy techies in their hoodies. And very quickly, it became uh, one of the world's leading industries, if not the leading industry. Uh, and a center of power uh, based in the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, and something to be treated with uh, intense scrutiny, you know. And that that shift has been pretty rapid over the past 10 years, I would say, uh, or past 20 years, probably. Um, I think also a lot of folks in Silicon Valley are used to the old ways of coverage, if you want to call it that, you know, the the Wired magazine covers or the MIT Tech Review covers where it's sort of like, looking at the, the portrait of a great founder or something or where, where Steve Jobs was treated with veneration rather than harshness, you know? And that's real whiplash for a lot of these founders and a lot of the people that work at these companies. And I think there's resentment that the tone is different. Um, I think some people, if they're honest with themselves, understand how powerful tech is and how transformative it can be and um, understand that comes with scrutiny. But I think it's very difficult for them to get used to. And I think the journalists are adapting uh, as well in their posturing and the type of um, reporting they can do. But I think it's I think it's overall a positive change. Well, listen, Mike, I really appreciated your time. I love yeah. talking journalism. I love talking to people right on the front lines. And you're right there with Facebook. Uh, obviously, the book on Uber, Super Pumped. I would encourage everybody to read that. Uh, and again, uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This is great. I appreciate it.